Good morning. Good morning. It's 1015. It's that time. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We thank you for the, the beautiful sunshine that reminds us of the warmth of your heart of love for us. We pray that our minds and hearts will be open to you and respond with a cord of love to you today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly. The quarterly is People on the Move, the Book of Numbers. And the title for this week is The Sin of Moses and Aaron. And I just want to make a, a, a brief announcement that for those who haven't visited my, uh, my friend Brad Cole's website recently, godscharacter.com, he's got a brand new revitalized website. It's got a really lot of, of very helpful and good material on it, including, as you know, all of his book-by-book Bible studies with the medical students and dental students at Loma Linda that you can audio listen to, but a whole lot of other materials on there as well. So godscharacter.com, uh, it's a really good resource. The sin of Moses and Aaron. The question for the class, what was the sin of Moses and Aaron? Assuming God's power for themselves. Assuming God's power for themselves. Uh, And maybe we could back up and ask a a more basic question. How would you define sin? Transgression of God's law. Okay, transgression of God's law. That, of course, is a quote right out of uh, 1 John. Is sin a commodity that can be transferred from person to animal in a ritualistic way? Or perhaps transferred from sinner to savior? Is sin something that can be transferred? Is it bad deeds, evil acts, bad behavior? Is it a condition of heart and mind which is incompatible with life? Or something else? Um... Recently, I've had the opportunity to speak to over 350 academy students over at College Academy on several occasions. And one of those occasions, I passed out 3x5 cards and asked them to write on the 3x5 card the answer to the question, what is sin? And I've got over 100 responses back, and I won't read them all, but I I thought I'd, I'd read some of them that came in. The responses from 14 to 17 or 18 year olds, what is sin? See what you think of their responses. An act against what God stands for. It is something that separates us from God. To do something that is morally wrong. Anything evil or unjust. Something that brings us down. The absence of anything good, anything not of God. Doing anything you know in your gut is wrong. Bad stuff. A bad thing that Satan discovered and brought upon us. The cause of all pain and suffering. When you do something you feel guilty about. Anything that makes God unhappy. Something to be forgiven. Whatever you do wrong and you don't even care what you did. And then there were two answers that were submitted by more than 10% of the students. In other words, over and over again, these two answers came in repeatedly. And these two answers were, sin is not following the Ten Commandments. Sin is going against the will of God. What do you think about these responses? Very insightful. Insightful, good ones. Traditional ones, I would say. Traditional ones. I categorize them into two classes. 
if you actually listen to what they said and think about the meaning of it, their answers broke down into two groups. Sin is bad behavior, an act of disobedience, something we do wrong. Or, sin is some evil commodity, entity, element, some thing or some stuff that separates us from God and makes us unhappy. That's how all those answers broke down out of those two groups. How do you like it when I, when I say it those ways? Is that what sin is? There were three answers given by three students that were different from all the rest. And those three answers from three separate students were, were this. Sin is the absence of love. The opposite of God's character, sin is being selfish. And then the third, sin is focusing on self. It all started with Satan and how he wanted to be greater than God. This is the root of all evil. And these three saw sin as a state of being, a defect in character, a deviation from God's heart of love. So how do you answer the question, what is sin? Any thoughts? Do you like the uh, traditional answers of behavior? Sin is bad behavior? I would have chosen before this class, before I started coming to this class. She said that's what she would have chosen before she started coming to this class, that sin is doing bad stuff. <laughs> what about now? No, now it's for like, the last three kids. We can, we can safely say that sin is a transgression of God's law as long as we define what God's law is. One of the things that I was going to say, does it make a difference? Does it make a difference how we define sin? Yes. Why does it make a difference? It does make a difference. Why? What are the reasons it makes a difference? See, I'm not here to tell you it makes a difference. I want you to understand the reasons why it makes a difference. So what are the reasons why? How we relate. How we relate to it, sin. How we relate to God. How to relate to God. You see, one of the first things they teach us at medical school is how to diagnose. One of the first skills we learn. Because if we diagnose wrong, then our treatment is wrong. So we need to know what sin is. So we can understand what God's trying to do, what his treatment plan is, so we can intelligently cooperate with him for his treatment of our condition, of our problem. It's a state of mind, how we think. So she says it's a state of mind, how we think. It's another description, this, this, this character defect that we talked about. And then so one, we need to understand sin, rightly, so we can cooperate for treatment, but also so we can avoid false remedies. If we have a false diagnosis or a wrong diagnosis, then we, we will buy into a, a, a remedy that treats that false diagnosis, which the Bible sometimes calls us false gospels, false treatment plans. So what then would be the right diagnosis? Somebody said already in here, this is First uh, John 3, 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's the NIV version. Sin is being lawless or without the law or outside of the law or the old King James transgression of the law. So the question that Russell asked then, what law? What law? And before we can understand what the problem of sin is, we have to really define that. And there are two primary ways of understanding God's law. And see which one that you've heard and and been taught and maybe even considered to be God's law most of your life. This is the first way of understanding God's law. A legal enactment by the creator of the universe, an imposed set of rules to which created beings are required to adhere upon threat of imposed penalty by the creator of the law. God created law as the creator and imposes that law upon his creation. And if you break it, he has to impose penalties. Have you ever considered God's law that way? Oh, I used to think of it all the time that way. 
And if you consider God's law that way, oh, the other way to consider it is a principle emanating from the Creator upon which life is designed to operate or function. Deviations are inherently incompatible with life as the Creator designed it. And so from these two ideas, two separate ideas of sin have emerged and two separate ideas of how God resolves the sin problem have emerged. One version goes, well, God is arbitrary and imposes laws upon his creatures that they must obey. And when the law was broken, God, in order to be just, had to impose penalties upon his creatures in order to be just. And this view sees sinful mankind under the legal condemnation of God and without hope of eternal life unless the legal penalty is paid. Sin, in this view, is disobedience to an imposed law, rule-breaking, bad behavior. Uh, very much like the high school's description, high school students, sin is not following the Ten Commandments, bad behavior. The view of the law leads to an entire, this view of the law leads to the entire penal substitution gospel, which is taught by most of, of the West uh, Catholic and Protestant theology. But what is the law? But what if the law is not enacted? If it's not imposed or legislated? What if the law is something entirely different that emanates from God's very person? Then wouldn't sin be something different than simple behavior problems? And wouldn't the treatment be something different? So if you use your Bible, can anybody tell me some Bible texts that define God's law? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does that tell us what, the, what, what law is, though? It certainly does. I mean, it, it does if we understand it first ahead of time, we can see the law there. But if we're looking to find the definition of the law, and we don't know it already, then... Okay, Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So there's one text, love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, the entire law summed up in a single command. The entire law, love your neighbor as yourself. Or James 2.8, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Or Matthew 22, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 6, when Jesus spoke, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. So, would we agree that the Bible teaches that God's law is the law of love? And the law of love is not something created but is the life principle that emanates from the God of love, because God is love. And so when he creates, would he not create everything in harmony with his own being, with his own character, with his own way of, of living? Or would he create things out of harmony with his character of love? No. He created everything to run in harmony with his law of love. That's his design for life. Then... The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that this love is not self-seeking. It's other-seeking. It's outward-moving. And then sin, then, would be what? If we understand that the law of love is the law of life, it's outward-moving, it's giving, it's the way God designed the universe to operate, and sin is lawlessness, or being outside the law, then what would sin look like? Something outside of love. Something outside of love. Something that is taking something that is selfish, something that's exploitive, something that's survival of the fittest, willing to take advantage and kill another to promote oneself. And stepping outside of the circle of life's normal operation, severing the flow of giving, violating the construction protocols for life, it's lawlessness. It's being outside the law, just like the Bible says. 
So with this in mind, if we accept this idea of what sin is, then we can go back and ask the question that the lesson asks us. What was the sin of Moses? He says being out of harmony with God. Looking out for number one. Moses finally got irritated and frustrated. What did he actually say? Must, must we bring water out of this rock for you people? Now, well, what's his attitude when he did this? We took on God's prerogatives. No question, he took it on by his statement. But what do you think his demeanor was? Was it gentle? You know, the meekest man on the whole earth most of his life. And think of, I mean, you've got to give the guy a little bit of a break, don't we? I mean, he put up with us for 40 years, wasn't it, pretty much? Great point, great point. And this is, a, she says, when, when he killed the Egyptian, this was, of course, when he was around age 40. Around age 40, Moses kills the Egyptian. What method is Moses practicing there? Loving others more than self or willing to kill others to promote your own way? Your own way. Exactly. So we see at age 40, Moses' heart wasn't yet changed. Even though he loved God, he still had that infection uh, that we all struggle with in our heart. But then he goes, flees Egypt, spends 40 years in the wilderness with God. And at the end of the 40 years, at age 80, he's now ready for ministry. And he comes back and he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then uh, after this rebellion where they uh, seek after these other gods and worship the golden calf and all this kind of stuff and grumbling and stuff, God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe these people out and I'm going to start over with you and your descendants. Everybody remember what I'm talking about? Now, Moses then says something. What does Moses say? Don't do it. If you're going to do that, wipe my name out of the book. What book is that? This wasn't Moses saying, hey, just let me rest in the grave until the resurrection. This is Moses saying, wipe me out of existence. I don't want to exist in a universe that operates like this. Now, do we find that at age 40, Moses was willing to kill others, but at age 80, Moses was willing to give his life to protect others? Did something change in Moses? And why do you think God, God said this to Moses? Do you think God said this to Moses because God needed Moses to plead with him so that God wouldn't strike out against the people? God was really mad. God was really angry. And Moses had come to be more loving and more forgiving and more gracious than God. And Moses begged God off from striking out against the people. Is that what we think happened here? No. Who else was looking at these events transpiring on earth? It says in, it says in 1 Corinthians 4 9 that we are spectacle unto angels and to men. We see this in the book of Job, chapter 1, where Satan comes walking to and fro on the earth, and, the, and all the sons of God have gathered, and, and this debate begins happening between Satan and God over whether Job was somebody who could be trusted by God. And so, what we see happening here, I believe, is a little picture into what sometimes happens that Satan is alleging look, this Moses guy, he murdered somebody at age 40. He can't be trusted. If you push him, he'll, he'll strike out against people. And God says, hey, Moses, Moses is an evidence of what happens when my methods are brought to bear on a sinful heart. When my methods are brought to bear on a sinful heart, in time, guess what happens? A regeneration, a transformation occurs such that a person who at one time in their life was be willing to kill another is now willing to be wiped out of existence to give their life to protect other people. 
That's what my methods do. And my methods will do that for all those earth beings down there who trust me. They're going to be transformed so they can live eternally with all of us up here. And so I think we see that. So that's a great point to bring up. And Moses' life showed that transforming and regenerating power that happened. Do you think after Moses' sin at, this, at the rock, striking the rock, do you, what do you think Moses, after he did it, his internal experience was like? Do you think he was self-justifying? Hey, they deserved it. Hey, I had every right to do that. Or do you think he was grief-stricken in his heart? Now, this is important to notice. I was just talking with Tina before class. That traditional way of seeing the law as behavior-based, seeing the law as a set of rules you've got to obey, traditionally brings up kids in Christian organizations with this constant insecurity of salvation. You're saved as long as you're doing all the rules, and if you make a mistake and break the rules, suddenly you're outside of salvation. So, you know, you're saved, you've been baptized, you know all this stuff, and then one night you get tempted and you get drunk and you get in a car wreck and you get killed, boom, you're lost because you didn't ask forgiveness first before you got in the car wreck. You, you, you follow me on this, right? You've, you've all had this type of thinking. Not so. This is not so. See, the saved person, this is what you read in Romans chapter 7. The saved person, the person who's in that love relationship with God, as soon as we come to God and give our heart to him, allow the Spirit to come in and begin working in our heart, do we have all old habit patterns, conditioned responses, reflexive uh, actions, and so forth, are all those instantly taken away from us? Or is there a growing, healing, regenerating process that happens? Yes, and this is what in Romans 7 Paul's talking about. In my mind, I want to serve God, but then sometimes I find I do things that I don't really want to do. So the person who is in a saved relationship like Moses, uh, when they make a mistake, they are grieved in their heart. It makes them sick. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Oh, man. Uh, the unsaved person, however, is the person who, when they make a mistake, justify it. Hey, I had every right to. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. If you didn't put her here in this garden, I would have never done that. See, that heart has not yet been regenerated. And so it's not primarily behavior-based. The behaviors reveal what's happening in the heart. Jesus said, you say, if you commit adultery, you commit sin. Bad act. I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Heart issue. And so as the heart gets transformed and regenerated, then the behaviors change. But uh, at, that's a growing, gradual process. And so you can come to the conversion. You can come to love the Lord. You can kind of want to follow him. But... Certain circumstances and situations can cause a reflexive reaction from an old habit pattern that hasn't been fully eradicated from your neural circuit yet. The brain hasn't degraded those old pathways yet. That you can act in a certain impulsive way that you are instantly grieved about. Lord, Lord, please, what a weak and sinful man I Who will save me from this body of death? That act didn't take you out of God's grace and end your salvation relationship with him. But if after the act, you justify yourself and say, I don't need your grace, Lord. I had every right to do that. They deserve that. Then you're putting a wall up between you and the working of the Spirit to change you. You see the difference? Yes, and it goes back to understanding the issue of sin. Is sin a behavior problem primarily, or is sin a heart condition that needs to be regenerated, healed, renewed? So then Moses' sin. Moses' sin, I think, was, was this very thing. And why was it uh, this very thing that at some point they finally got to him where he got frustrated in his own self and rose himself up? Hey, how can we, uh, you know, and, 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 and have this angry attitude toward them, self rising up and taking over the motives of the heart? Let's look at Sunday's lesson, third paragraph. It starts out, the water gushed. Somebody read that for us so everyone can hear in the room. The water gushed forth in abundance to satisfy the host. But a great wrong had been done. Moses had spoken from irritated feelings. 
And when he took it upon himself to accuse them, he grieved the Spirit of God and wrought only harm to the people. His lack of patience and self-control was evident. Thus the people were given occasion to question whether his past course had been under the direction of God and to excuse their own sins. Moses, as well as they, had offended God. His course, they said, had from the first been open to criticism and censure. They had now found the pretext which they desired for rejecting all the reproofs that God had sent them through his servant. The question I have is, we, we've identified that Moses' behavior, striking the rock, and his attitude of anger, irritated feelings, stemmed from a heart where he finally got a little bit self-focused at that moment. An old, deep-seated issue of the heart that we all struggle with. But why was it so devastating? Why was it so severe that God had to ban Moses from going into the promised land? Moses misrepresented God's character. Because Moses misrepresented God's character. Imagine if, if we, on several times a week, gathered together and watched our pastor walk into the tent of meeting. And we saw the fiery glory of God come down and settle in the tent. And we saw our pastor talk to the Lord face to face. And when the pastor leaves the tent, his face is radiating this glory. This, like We can't even hardly look at it because his face is so bright. And then he speaks to us. Do you think he would have some authority? Yeah. Different than what he currently has? Yeah. yeah, I mean, think we take him seriously. It would have a pretty big impact. And then how about he comes out with that type of authority and speaks in these harsh tones and irritable words? Might we get a misunderstanding about who God is? And why is that so bad? Yes, Tina. Well, in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 14, it says, I had never thought of it this way. It says, by his rash act, Moses took away the force of the lesson that God purposed to teach. The rock, being a symbol of Christ, had been once smitten, as Christ was to be once offered. The second time, it was needed only to speak to the rock, as we have only to ask for blessings in the name of Jesus. By the second smiting of the rock, the significance of this beautiful figure of Christ was destroyed. Okay. There is multiple layers here. One, the, the significance of the rock that, from which they drew the water, the water of life being Christ. The symbolism was, was broken in striking the rock. And his angry attitude as they looked upon him. Remember, um, Moses represented Christ to the people, didn't he? And so as, as he became angry and irritable, his own demeanor misrepresented the character of God as well. So we have multiple layers of misrepresentation going on here, all speaking to the same thing, that, you know, um, which goes back to the whole idea of why Christ had to die. Many teach that Christ had to die to be punished in our place by God, that he be, he, sin is a commodity, it got transferred to the Son, he took it upon himself, all the sins of everybody that's ever committed, past, present, and future, were placed upon Christ and punished by God at the cross. Yeah? You've heard this? Yeah. And now what happened here is the symbolism is broken. God has to punish him twice. Is that really what's being taught? Hmm. So what happens in the heart and mind of human beings when we believe that God is angry, wrathful, severe, and unforgiving, what happens to us? Fear. Fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. Do we see a, 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 a conflict here between love and fear? God is love. If God is perfect love and we come to life eternal, John seventeen three, this is life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. And if God is love, as we come to know him, well, we know his love. And will that love, that perfect love, begin driving fear out of our heart? 
so as if we understand knowing God is eternal life, knowing God we come to know his love, it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. Love frees us from fear. The closer we come to God, the less fear-ridden people we are, yes? Then what do you think Satan would like to see in us? Less fear or more fear? So then he would like to see God concepts that we teach and believe that inflame fear. God concepts that inflame fear. Because the more fear-ridden we are, then the less... And think about this in your own life. Think about times when you were particularly afraid or scared about something. Was it hard at that point for you to really be concerned about another person? When you're really, really frightened, who are you thinking about? (laughs) Have you ever been in a moment of genuine other-centered love? I mean, your heart was really full of the love you have for the other person. Did you have any fear at that moment? Now, I do a radio program every week with Charles Mills, and this past week we talked about this, and he told me a story on air that uh, one day he was out walking with his wife, and they were walking through the neighborhood, and a large, very large, brown, blackish dog, uh, vicious, comes running out at them, barking with snarling and looking very, very mean. And he said, when he saw this dog, he instantly had this reaction of fear and started to run. Until he saw the dog turn its sight on his wife. And when the dog started toward his wife, he said, the fear was gone, and he turned and started chasing the dog. (laughs) And what happened? Parents, if you were in that circumstance, you saw a dog chasing your child, would you be running away from the dog, or would you be running toward the dog? Toward the dog. You see, love casts out fear. And it's the only power in the universe that can free our hearts from fear is the power of love. But when we have misconceptions about God that cause us to see him as severe, arbitrary, unforgiving, a a being who's waiting to punish, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to strike out against you, a being who needs someone between us and him to plead to him so he won't be mad, well, then that keeps us in fear of him. And sadly, this is how it's often depicted. We talk about Jesus as our mediator. So let's talk about that. Let's move into that question. Bottom question, uh, bottom of Sunday's lesson, um, it says, Think of a time when you felt pushed over the edge, did something rash, sinful. How, how often did you wish you could have turned back the clock and undone the damage? Well, lessons that we learned from the incidents in dealing, uh, ideally, that we could help prevent us from doing the same thing. Again, as we, we think about this, something rash, something pushed you over the edge, I, I, the first thing that popped in my mind is, are we powerless? Are we helpless? Are we just floating along in life waiting for, some, for the next event to trigger an emotional reaction of frustration and irritation that causes us to fly off the handle? Uh, or can we actually take purpose, purposeful steps in our lives right now that will diminish the likelihood that regardless of what happens, you'll lose control? Do you have to just go along floating, waiting, hoping nothing really significant happens that, that ticks you off and put you over the edge emotionally, or can you do things right now that prepares you to not be so likely to fly off the handle? What kind of things can you do that can prepare you now? Specific things, actions you can take. Ask God for help. Ask God for help. Daily. Daily ask God for help. Yes. Learn to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, but still no, yes? I think really focusing on the life of Christ and the way he dealt with things, I mean, it is such a powerful example, and when we look at that, we're just blown away. 
Okay, she says, focusing on the life of Christ. Now, this comes out of a, a, a book called Desire of Ages, page 83. Listen to this. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. And we thus, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Now, I don't, I'm not one who likes to just read things and say, well, we've read it in a book. You should believe it. That settles it. We should say, okay, that, that's nice. We've heard that. Is there evidence to support that that's true? What evidence do we have that if we would spend a thoughtful hour each day contemplating the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, the closing scenes would be the, the place we most powerfully see self-sacrificing love in action, right? Focusing on other-centered love. Why would this be helpful? Well, there's the aspect of modeling. By beholding, we become changed. We actually take into our mind as we study things, concepts, constructs, belief systems that change how we think about what's happening. So our, our perspectives can be changed by this type of, of thought process. But there's something even more that we've discovered in brain science. They've done, they've done brain scans of people uh, and have them meditate. Now, now, this advice was an hour a day. They, on, the, on these particular brain scans they've done, these studies, they took people aged 60 to 65. So we're moving into the era of our life where our brains are not as quite as elastic and pliable as they were when we were younger. So these are taking people 60 and 65 years of age. They have them meditate 12 minutes a day on some aspect of love or God's character of love, other-centered altruistic love as would be seen in the final days of Christ's life. 12 minutes a day of this type of meditation. Prior to the, uh, to the exercises, they, they do brain scans and measure a particular part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. This is right up between your eyes, about a little bit back, right up behind your forehead. And this is the part of the brain where you experience compassion, empathy, other-centered goodness, altruism, love. And this part of the brain is directly wired to your fear center called the amygdala. And when this part of the brain fires, it turns off the fear center. So they, they, they measured the, this part of the brain. They also took blood catecholamine levels, which are stress hormone levels. They measured heart rate and blood pressure, which is a measure of how much stress you're under. And they did memory testing before and 30 days later. And what did they discover? That 12 minutes a day of meditating on God's character of love or some aspect of love uh, 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 happened? That they could actually see growth on a scan of the brain in the anterior cingulate cortex. It was larger in, in 30 days, 12 minutes a day. Not only that, catecholamine levels or stress hormone levels were lower, heart rate was lower, blood pressure was lower, and there was improvement in memory testing in 30 days from this type of meditation. So here we have counsel given. It would be well if we spent a thoughtful hour each day contemplating the life of Christ, meditating upon it. It's not just constructs, ideas that change. Neural wiring, neurobiology changes such that the aspects or the parts of our brain where we experience love actually grow stronger and the fear centers are calmed and turned down, shutting down the whole stress cascade. And that stress cascade, when the fear centers fire, cause activation of your immune system, which releases all types of inflammatory factors that cause increasing physical health and ultimately reacts back upon your brain, damaging various brain centers, leading to depression and other mental illness. So when the Bible says, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine, it is absolutely true, neurophysiologically. So, one thing we can do to prepare ourselves so that we're not as likely to fire off the handle if something doesn't go our way is spend time every day contemplating God's character of love, meditating upon God's character of love. 
It helps the brain change, keeps us calmer. Other things we can do, physical exercise. Physical exercise is very interesting. Um, as you, if you do aerobic exercise, aerobic exercise does several good things for you. One, it causes the body to release something called interleukin-10. Interleukin-10 is a very powerful anti-inflammatory agent that suppresses these, this, these inflammatory cytokines that cause so much damage in our body. So it pushes those down and decreases those. The, um, the exercise also causes the brain to release various neurotrophic factors, both for the, for the um, capillary neurotrophic factors, so you get better blood flow, which oxygenation and nutrients to the brain, but also neurotrophic factors that cause the neurons to branch out. You can learn better, and your brain stays healthier if you exercise. So exercise is something you can do. How about... Good sleep. Have you ever heard the old wives' tale? Um, don't go to bed angry. Hey, this is not true, actually. If it can be solved really simply in 30 seconds or less late at night, do it. But if it's something complicated that's going to take a conversation, it is actually better for you to say to your spouse, hey, I love you. Let's go sleep on it and resolve this in the morning. And the reason for that is, as you go through the day and become fatigued, prefrontal cortex, this part of your brain right behind your forehead, loses effectiveness. It's not as effective throughout the day as you're sleep-deprived. So late at night, you're not as clear thinking. And it's the prefrontal cortex that calms the, the lower emotional centers called the limbic system where you feel, ir, ir, feel irritation and moodiness. And so if you go to bed and sleep on it, the next day you'll be able to uh, wake up with an active and healthy prefrontal cortex, which can process those irritable moods much better. If you stay up and try to resolve this in a fatigued state, you're much more likely to say things you didn't mean and have ugly arguments that you could have avoided if you'd have had good rest. So sleep healthy, sleep cycles keep the brain healthy, sleep deprivation uh, impairs it. Of course, avoiding all those different toxins and poisons um, that uh, damage your brain. Uh, what about theatrical entertainment? Theatrical entertainment, like television watching and movie watching, um, what they do is they actually, in the brain, the way it's designed, um, the neural circuits you fire get stronger. The neural circuits you don't use get weaker. And I won't go into all the neurobiology of how that happens and the genes expressed that are involved behind that. But just uh, imagine you take your right arm, go to the gym, work out for the next six weeks, and you put your left arm in the sling for six weeks. At the end of six weeks, what do your two arms look like? Neural circuitry-wise, it's the same thing. Neural circuits you exercise get stronger. Those you leave dormant and don't exercise get weaker. This is how we're, we're, we're created. We're created for adaptation to change based on the choices we make and the experiences we go through. Theatrical television has as its primary goal to activate your mood centers, to get you to laugh, to get you to cry, to get you irritable, to get you frustrated. And the more of that stuff you watch every day, the more those mood centers get activated, while simultaneously it turns off or paralyzes or, or suspends activity in your prefrontal cortex. And so you become less reasonable, more moody, more irritable, or more likely to fly off the handle if you watch a lot of TV. And parents, if you have kids that are moody and irritable, one of the things you can do is reduce the amount of electronic stimulation they're getting, especially theatrical entertainment, because it's, it's, it's damaging to the neural circuitry. And I know some parents might be asking, what about video games? So I'll just, it wasn't in my notes, but I'll just go ahead and say it because it always comes up. Video gaming actually is a little bit different. And video gaming is primarily content-driven. Theatrical entertainment uh, has two, two avenues of, 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 of destruction. One is the content causes kids and people to have belief systems that are unhealthy, and those belief systems and causes us to act on those beliefs. So that's one way. But the theatrical entertainment, even when you have G-rated programming, activates those mood centers, paralyzes prefrontal cortex, and results in more impulsive and more moody people. Video gaming, however, it's primarily content-driven. 
primarily because video gaming requires the activation of the prefrontal cortex in order to organize, plan, strategize, uh, anticipate, coordinate with anybody on your team that you might be doing. So there's a lot of prefrontal cortex activity going on. The problem with video gaming, though, is content because the video gaming will short-circuit God's normal balance of your mind where you, instead of feeling a sense of conviction, a sense of wrongdoing, a sense of guilt for murder, stealing, bribes, um, uh, shooting and killing people, you actually get reward. So the reward pathways are activated when you run over the prostitute with the car when you uh, shoot the, this person, okay? You're getting reward pathways, and this causes a desensitization of your conscience, and you're more likely to strike out. This is, in fact, uh, wh- how and why one of the video games called Call of Duty was even designed. Call of Duty was designed by the U.S. Army, and it was designed to help desensitize young men going into combat so they could kill uh, without such uh, hesitancy or reluctance, and this is what video gaming does. It actually causes a cross-circuitry of the normal balance of the mind. And so you have to have to be very careful in the content of video gaming. Healthy content could actually, and there are games that are designed therapeutically to help enhance various um, brain functions because uh, it, does, it does do that. But you have to be very careful on that. So a lot of things we can do, and the point we, we started asking is, are we just vulnerable, passively waiting for life to hit us, or can we make intelligent choices to prepare us to be less vulnerable to the circumstances around us? And we can make purposeful choices that change us in uh, understanding God's methods, his design for, for life, his law of love that actually strengthen us. One other thing I'll mention, and we'll move on from this, is altruistic endeavors. Actually giving of yourself for other people. Well-documented scientific studies that show when you give of yourself, your time, your energy to help another person, you actually strengthen anterior cingulate cortex, you calm the amygdala or the, or, the, or the anxiety centers, and you have better physical health and less uh, medical, medical problems across the board. Uh, and you actually live longer than people who don't uh, engage in altruistic behavior. Let's go to Monday's lesson. Death of Aaron. Let's, uh, let's read the uh, first paragraph, chapter 20. Somebody read that for us. Chapter 20 opened with the death of Miriam and ended with the death of Aaron. It's clear that the older generation was passing on and the new one was taking up where they had left off. We see the same thing in our church today. One generation goes and a new one arises to pick up the mantle. The crucial question remains, how much will the new generation learn from the mistakes as well as the successes of the older one? Now that is a wide open door. (laughs) And I encourage you to step through it. What can we learn from the generations that have gone before us? Any thoughts? Are there dangers in just picking up and accepting what we have been taught by the generation before us and just promoting the thing that was taught by the generation before us? Are there dangers in doing that? Yes. I watched my father for 28 years and he was the most kind and loving and patient person that I've ever seen. I'd like to be like that. Okay, this is a powerful lesson of good. Watch dad for 28 years who is kind, patient, and gentle, and, and wanting to emulate that type of, of living. That is something we want to learn and, and, and do carry on with us. That's excellent, yes. One thing that we want to be careful of is, is not having an open mind that is teachable, just stopping, and, and just stop where our parents stopped and not moving beyond that with new light and information. Oh, I love that. See, she said, we never want to arrive at the truth. Don't arrive. Because when you arrive at the truth, what happens? You're done. You've arrived. No more to learn. Mind closes. Shuts down. And if you think about that infinite God and our finite minds, how big a gap is there between our understanding and Him? Will there ever come a time through eternity that we arrive at that all truth? No. 
So we never arrive. We always keep growing in the truth, always advance, keep our minds open to learn more. Whatever the generation before us knew, if we're growing in truth, we need to understand it more deeply, more fully, more broadly. We need to have new insights, new truths coming. And listen to this from one of the founders of our church, out of Gospel Workers, page 297. Whenever the people of God are growing in grace, they will be constantly obtaining a clear understanding of his word. They will discern new light and beauty in its sacred truths. This has been true in history of the church of all ages, and thus it will continue to the end. But as real spiritual life declines, it will ever be the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of truth. Men rest satisfied with the light already received from God's word and discourage any further investigation of Scripture. They become conservative and seek to avoid discussion. The fact that there is no controversy or agitation among God's people should not be regarded as conclusive evidence that they are holding fast to sound doctrine. There is reason to fear that they may not clearly be discriminating between truth and error. When no new questions are started by the investigation of Scripture, when no difference of opinion arises which will set men to searching the Bible for themselves to make sure that they have the truth, there will be many now, as in ancient times, who will hold to tradition and worship they know not what. I have been shown that many who profess to have the knowledge of present truth know not what they believe. They do not understand the evidences of their faith. They have no just appreciation of the work for the present time. When the time of trial shall come, there are men now preaching to others who will find upon examination the positions they hold that there are many things for which they can give no satisfactory reason. Until thus tested, they knew not their great ignorance. And there are many in the church who take it for granted that they understand what they believe, but until controversy arises, they do not know their own weakness. When separated from those of like faith and compelled to stand singly and alone to explain their beliefs, they will be surprised to see how confused are their ideas and of what they have accepted as truth. So question for this group. Have you, through controversial dialogue and discussion, been driven to study and discovered that there were ideas you previously held that didn't actually make sense? Yes. Yes. Have any of you struggled in the past or even in the present to give explanations for what you believe, finding it hard to explain your beliefs? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 I hear. Well, this is what this class is for. It's for us to dialogue. It's for you to say, wait a second, hold on, I don't understand that. I disagree with that. You're really kind of out there on the edge, Dr. Jennings. You need to, you need to back up and explain. That's kind of controversial. That's what this class is for. It's to ask questions, to stimulate your thinking. As I've said before, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to get you to think. We have to think it through for ourselves. And so one of the things I think we learn is we learn that we need to advance in truth. We don't want to continue to present. And I would say, if you look at the history of our church, what significant advancements in truth have we made in the last hundred years? But that's what's so difficult to sit and listen to this sometimes, is because being raised in that and truth your whole life and hearing for 50 years these things, and all of a sudden you come up with something we've never heard before, it's kind of hard. It really is. It's kind of hard to accept something. That's why we shouldn't accept it because I say it. I'm saying, don't ever accept anything because I say it. You should accept it only because you've taken the time to search out God's word and see if it's supported by the evidence, makes sense, and is reasonable. Yes? Experiential education shows us that no matter how much we study, we only absorb and retain a certain percentage of what we study. So if we're, just, if we're studying, if we're taking words from you or, or any other new doctrine that's presented, we take that and we move it on. You retain, say, 90% of what you study. You pass it on to us. We retain 90% of what you study, which is 90% of the original. Now we're down to about 80-some percent. 
if we pass that on without going back to the original word and investigating it, then pretty soon we're, we're left with none of the original. So he's talking about a copy of a copy of a copy. <laughs> Every time you run a copy through a copier and then the copy of the copy of the copy, it degrades, it degrades, it degrades, and pretty soon you don't even know what you're looking at anymore. He's talking about every one of us needing to go back to the primary source for our own imprint of our own mind from the source of God's word, not from a teacher or a preacher. And the teachers or preachers' jobs are to stimulate you to do that work on your own where you can see it, read it, work it out. I mean, think about it as teachers in the room. If you're teaching math to a student, you don't teach the students by simply giving answers. They have to learn to work the problems. And if they don't learn to work the problems, it doesn't matter if they can write the right answers on the, on the exam when they are actually tested and have new problems to solve. They can't give a reason for why they got the answer. That's what she's talking about here. Each one of us have to learn to work these problems out, understanding the origin of the controversy in heaven, what it was over, uh, the purpose and the creation of humanity, how humanity fell, what the conflict really is about in our hearts on earth, why Christ had to die, what he accomplished at his death, what the Holy Spirit is doing on earth today, what the consummation will be and how it's going to look. I mean, all of these things are there for us to work out, but there has to be a a cohesive whole. And oftentimes traditional answers are very inconsistent. And this is why we lose a generation after generation in our church, because we give them answers that are inconsistent and don't make sense. And kids like things to make sense. And we have the opportunity to work those things out. Some of my former teachers are in the room. I see a couple of them. And, uh, and, I, and I, I was a troublesome student for my teachers. And I see some heads nodding. <laughs> because I would, I would question. I would say, wait a minute, you said this over here, but this over here doesn't fit with what you said over here. It doesn't make sense. And my teachers didn't like that a lot. <laughs> and a lot of times the answers we got were, well, that's what the text says, that's what the Bible says, that's what the Sir White says, that's just the way it is, that's the rules, that's the policy, that's the... Some things we'll never know till we get to heaven. Some things we'll never know till we get to heaven. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> so you all heard that one, haven't you? <laughs> Are there any lessons that we might learn that can help us, as Peter says, hasten the day of the Lord? Because it, that's what my heart wants. I want to get out of this world. You know, my dad died 16 years ago. And I remember when he died, the pain and the hurt and the thought that came through my heart was, the sooner we get out of this world, the better. The sooner we get out of this world, the better. And I, I decided at that point that I wanted to use my energy to do all I could to hasten the day. And what can we do to hasten the day? Jesus said, when, this, when the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, the end will come. Now notice, the gospel of the kingdom. What kingdom? kingdom of heaven which is the kingdom of love it is the gospel of love that is to be preached to the world that gospel has not gone to the world we've had this other thing this penal substitution penalty thing that goes to the world an angry God who must be appeased pay the penalty that's what's gone to the world this is why Christ hasn't come because people are still afraid of God but they're thankful they have Jesus to protect us from him that's the image that's gone to the world. And I did want to say something about mediation. I'm going to have to jump up in my, in my notes a little bit. But uh, this idea of mediation, let's go to Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson asks us to read Numbers 21, 5 through 9. 
which goes, they spoke against God and, and against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many of the Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole. When anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And then the lesson asks us this question. How again do we see Moses in the role of intercessor? Why especially now did the people need an intercessor? They were dying. They were dying, but why did they need an intercessor? They didn't trust them. The nature of the snake was to bite. And poison that it, that, it, that it put in them, the nature of the poison was to kill them. They needed something to go in between the nature of the snake and the poison and themselves. The nature of God is perfection. The nature of God is love. The nature of God is like the sun. And if we're standing in front of the sun without sunblock, the nature of the sun is to burn. We can't, we can't change that, but we need an intercessor between us. It's not a bad thing. That's just the nature of God. They had lost their trust in God. They didn't have confidence that he was caring for them and leading them and providing okay. for them. This is the answer. Why did they need an intercessor? Because they needed someone that knew God between them, because they didn't know him. If they knew God themselves, like Moses did, did Moses need an intercessor? No. Was it because God was paced favorites and liked Moses better than the rest of the people, and he was willing to talk to Moses, and God is unwilling to talk to anybody else? Or is it because they were unprepared to talk to God? Yes? God had stayed the same through the entire Bible from one end to the other. The methods seem different only because he's dealing with different audiences and we do the same thing when we, when we deal with our children when they're two years old and instead of saying to them as they are walking around the living room, uh, be safe and careful. No, we, we go around and say, okay, don't stick your finger in the outback. And then we walk them a little bit further and we say, don't put your hand on the stove. And we're very specific. God has to do the same thing. And depending on us and how we're understanding him, he uses varying, uh, varying methods to try to get through to us, not because he's changing, but because... He's dealing with us where we are. I like it. You like it? See, we don't understand or comprehend God rightly, so we need somebody to intercede, mediate between us and God for what purpose? Yes. You know how the Bible talks about Satan and, his, and the angels, the third angels being cast out of heaven? Do you think it's because they were going to be wiped out? They could not exist and could not exist in God's presence. And if that happened, then the rest of the universe is seeing this would get the wrong picture of God. It wasn't that he was... I, I think that he was almost, in a way, he was protecting them from that. It was in, in an effort to let the entire universe see what would play out, what would happen if this course of action was perpetuated. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable uh, thing for us to ponder, but let's ponder it and, and work it out. Um, uh, it's based on several premises. One, that, um, that a sinful being can't be in God's presence without being destroyed. And that if God were to um, wipe out Satan and sin prior to its full exposure, then they would have drawn the wrong conclusions about God. No question the second premise is true. 
If God would have exercised power to inflict the death penalty upon Satan and wiped him out, then the universe would have drawn the conclusion. Or if God would have simply let Satan pass, the universe would have drawn the same conclusion. But when I look at the book of Job, I see that Satan was going into God's presence quite some time later um, and wasn't having any, any death-threatening effects. It didn't seem to be quite insecure about doing that. And so I'm not uh, quite convinced that um, the angels were cast out for their preservation sake. Um, I would say, in fact, if you read what Christ re- said to his disciples, right prior to his crucifixion, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world should be cast out. Now. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all, not all men, all, the whole universe. There's no men in Greek. Men is supplied in the English translations. Will draw all unto me. And it's my belief, based on what we see in the book of Job, that prior to Christ's crucifixion, that Satan and his angels still had the ability to go back and forth into the heavens and and deal and talk with heavenly beings. Um, But at Christ's crucifixion, that is when Satan was cast out. But where was he cast out of? The hearts, minds, and affections of all heavenly beings. Up until that point, uh, this remember, Lucifer was a friend. He was a loved friend of the beings of heaven. And they were having a hard time getting their mind around the idea that this loving, incredible being that they've known their whole existence could be this horrible thing that he's become. And it wasn't until the death of Christ, when he was lifted up and revealed, and Satan revealed himself fully and exposed himself as a murderer and fraud that he was, that all affection in heaven from all the heavenly beings were cast out. And the reason that Satan was cast out is not because God suddenly put up an impenetrable force field that Satan is now uh, housed on the earth and he can't leave, but it's because there is not one intelligent being in the universe that will give Satan a second, a minute of their time. It's like, talk to the hand, I'm not listening. Okay? Uh, That's what happened after the crucifixion. Satan was restricted here because we are the only beings on earth, excuse me, on the universe, that are willing to listen to anything he has to say anymore. The rest of the universe was convinced that he's wrong and he's cast out of the heart and out of the affections of the rest of the being. That's how I see it anyway. Um, but then back to this intercession, this goes, it segues very nicely into what the scriptures say. And we, we talk about Moses was interceding for the people because they didn't know God. Who was our intercessor? It's Jesus, right? Interceding to accomplish what? Well, it says in Colossians 2, 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14, 9. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. So what we see is Jesus, and it says in Hebrews 1, 3, that he was an exact representation of the Father. So in Jesus we see the Father fully revealed, and thus we read in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have the full, his fullness dwell in him, and through him, get this, through Christ, reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you get that? Heavenly things were reconciled to God through Christ's death on the cross. And this is what we read and review in Herald January 11, 1881, written by Ellen White. Well, we rejoice that there are worlds which have never fallen. These worlds render praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for the plan of redemption to save the fallen sons of Adam, as well as to confirm themselves in their position and character of purity. The arm that raised the human family from ruin, which Satan had brought upon the race through his temptations, is the arm which has preserved the inhabitants of other worlds 
uh, from sin. Every world throughout immensity engages the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Christ is mediating in behalf of man, and in the order of the unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. Did you know the unfallen beings needed Christ's mediation? It only works when you understand the law as a law of love. When you understand sin as a transgression of the life principle brought about by believing Satan's lies about God. Then we understand that Christ is the conduit, the representative, the ambassador, the one who is always seeking to approach God's creation and bring God's creation closer to God constantly. He is the perfect representation, the one who mediates God's character to all creation. But when you understand mediation as this other thing, we have an angry, wrathful God whose law was broken, and we need somebody to plead with him, my blood, my blood, Father, please be gracious, because these poor sinful beings down there have broken your law, and we know you're about to lash out and punish them with, with suffering and misery. If we understand that as mediation, then these types of things in Colossians and in, uh, and in the Review and Herald make no sense, because why do unfallen beings need to have Jesus plead his blood for them? We need to explain things to our kids that make sense. And this other thing of an angry, wrathful God who looks just, who Jesus looks just like, but Jesus is kind and loving, doesn't make sense. So we need to bring the pieces together um, and present a, present a gospel message that is, that is freeing and is powerful. Boy, we have so many more things to talk about. Any questions anybody has before we, we close today? <laughs> What about Moses when he, he explains what God did to him? He says, the Lord reprimanded Moses and Aaron, because you did not have enough faith to acknowledge my holy power before the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land that I promised to give them. Thank you for bringing that up, because that we skipped over. Why was it that Moses was hit with what appeared to be such harsh punishment? Because the position that Moses held to the people was the position of God. And because what he did misrepresented God's character to the people, God had to make a strong statement to the people that, hey, this is not the right picture. Don't accept it. Very strong statement. Is faith a great word to use there? Might Moses have chosen another word? I think it's an okay word. It's faith, trust. Same word, you know, trust. If, if you trusted me, then you would have trusted me with the outcome for how this is going to turn out. You wouldn't have taken it into your own hands to work it out in your own way. But Moses not allowed to be frustrated. Yeah, he wasn't allowed to be frustrated. I don't think it was the problem. I think having a, a frustrating feelings, having powerful human emotions is not sin. Look at Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ had overwhelming feelings of anguish and distress to the point that he was nearing death, if, you, if we read the text correctly. Yet he did not sin. So having emotions is not the same thing as having sin. Also in the temple. It's being governed or controlled by the emotions over good judgment that cause us to act contrary to the principles of God's character of love. That's... You have to look at what actually happened, though, there. Moses, at that point in time, begged God, please, I don't want to die. Moses was looking at it just from the concept, as you said. But God came, resurrected him, took him to heaven, and he has lived since then as an example of what happens when you die first. And then, I mean, Moses didn't get such a bad deal. The people got a big lesson. That's right. So from God's perspective, Moses wasn't getting shortchanged. No, Moses, that's it. Moses wanted to go into the earthly Canaan, and God was planning to take him to the heavenly Canaan. Well, I don't know. Did the Israelites know that Moses was taken to heaven? His grave was never found.
I'm not that familiar with Jewish history. I know we got it in Jude in the New Testament that we're finally told that. that uh, but did the, is it Jewish tradition that Moses was taken to heaven? Does anybody know? Then regardless of where the tradition went, the point was for them. And right there they got it. They saw. The point was, this is not me. Moses made a big mistake. I've got to get that. Yeah, I think that was the lesson God intended. I would suggest to you, however, that the majority of people didn't get the lesson. Any more than when parents discipline small children, that small children always get the right lesson. (laughs) Small children sometimes get the wrong lesson, don't they? They often think mommy's mad, daddy's angry, um, I'm a bad kid. Um, I mean, they get the wrong lesson sometimes, even though we're trying to do the best to teach them the right lesson. So I think you're right. He was, his intention was to teach them this, but I think a lot of the children of Israel just said, whoa, man, if he's going to fry Moses like that, holy smokes, man. He is a scary guy. We better watch out. I think a lot of them got that idea instead. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not like Satan has represented you to be. We, we, we love your character of love as revealed in Jesus. We pray that your spirit will be poured out to take all that Christ Jesus has achieved and reproduce it in our hearts. May we partake again of your law of love. May it be written on the fleshly tablets of our heart. May we give of ourselves to help others, to build up others, to be, to be back into the circle of your universal harmony that we can lighten this world and take this good news to free minds that have this other thing in their head about you that keep them afraid. May they come to see you as their best friend in the universe. We pray in your holy name. Amen.